0: you, Dan. Good morning, Village Church. My name is Matt Bowman, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Village Church, and we've been going through a sermon series that we are calling Jesus is the One. And this morning, we are going to see that Jesus is the one who defines the Sabbath. Maybe you listened to Dan read the scripture this morning, and you thought, how can all this talk about the Jewish Sabbath have anything to do with me? today. I think historically Christians have overlooked implications that these Old Testament laws have on Christians today, and we often fail to see the context of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. He was the Jewish Messiah, and his scriptures were the Jewish scriptures. He was the fulfillment to those promises that God made to Abraham all those years ago that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So this morning I hope to show you that Jesus fulfills the Jewish Sabbath and he's the one who gets to define the Sabbath. You can learn a lot by a passage by looking at its context. And so Luke five and six actually form a really nice coherent package together. Three weeks ago, Pastor Josh preached on the three episodes of the calling of the disciples Last week, Pastor David preached on two episodes where Jesus healed people. And this week, we're looking at two teachings on the Sabbath. Why is the episode of the calling of the disciples broken up into three parts? Why didn't Luke just put them all together? And I think the reason why is that Luke wanted all these episodes to be read together as one unit. He's telling us that the disciples, the healings, and the Sabbath are all connected somehow. The calling passages are centered on Jesus calling Levi, as we heard three weeks ago. And it's at the center of this section because it's showing us the kinds of people that Jesus is now calling into his kingdom. The people who are going to inhabit his kingdom. It will be tax collectors and sinners. That frames the two healing passages that Pastor David preached on last week. Because Jesus' kingdom is one where healing occurs. Where the brokenness of this evil age will be fixed in the kingdom age. And the calling passages also frame the teachings on the Sabbath that we're looking at this morning. Because the Sabbath is Jesus' in his kingdom won't be about rules and regulations. But it will be a time of rest and renewal for those who have been excluded. Something we also see in this entire section between these two chapters is that Jesus is coming into contact increasingly with confrontation from the religious leaders. They don't like the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, but they can't stop it. So they decide that they're going to try to stop Jesus instead. And we'll see the kind of kingdom that Jesus is building next week when we transition to a different section where we get the Sermon on the Plain, which is Jesus's longest extended teaching in the entire Gospel of Luke. He'll teach us what it's like to obey him in his kingdom. But this week, we're looking at these two Sabbath teachings, the Sabbath and the kingdom. So let's look at it starting in chapter six, verse one. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Last week in chapter 5, we saw that the Pharisees came on the scene, and they're growing increasingly hostile to Jesus and his ministry. When Jesus healed the paralytic, they accused him of blasphemy because he claimed to forgive sins. I mean, I guess it would be blasphemy if he wasn't actually God in human form in front of them. When Jesus called Levi, they accused Jesus' disciples, and Jesus by association, of eating with tax collectors and sinners. And here again, we see the Pharisees accusing Jesus' disciples, and Jesus by association, of profaning the Sabbath. Now, it's really important to understand the charge the Pharisees are not accusing the disciples of stealing. They're just out for an after synagogue stroll, hungry, looking for something to eat, looking for a Chipotle. That's all that they're doing here. Chipotle hadn't made it that far yet, unfortunately, so we got a grain field, so that'll have to do. What the disciples are actually doing here is actually legal under Deuteronomy 23, verse 24. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of the grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put on any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. This was the law of gleaning. Travelers and the poor were allowed to glean from ripe fields if they were hungry. This was a way of protecting the poor in Israel if they didn't have enough food for a journey. Israelites were commanded not to harvest the margins of their fields so that gleaners could come and gather food. In Leviticus 23:22 it says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This law of the gleaner actually plays a really big role in the entire book of Ruth. So the charge against Jesus' disciples is not stealing. The charge is that they were doing work on the Sabbath. Specifically, the Pharisees are charging the disciples with harvesting on the Sabbath, and you notice the detail that Luke includes here. His disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. To examine this charge, we need to go all the way back to the Ten Commandments. Keeping the Sabbath holy was commandment number four, and we find it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Sabbath commandment, along with its explanation, is actually the longest of the Ten Commandments. In Genesis one, when God rested on the seventh day, the seventh day is the first thing that God calls holy. So we can assume that this is a big deal to God. Notice that the reason for the Sabbath here is grounded in the creational pattern because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Israel was to reflect this creational pattern in their cycle of six days of work and one day of rest. So the Pharisees are accusing the disciples of working on the Sabbath, and this was no small charge. In Israel, profaning the Sabbath was a capital crime, and you can read in Numbers 15 that a man was actually stoned to death for gathering sticks on the Sabbath. It wasn't just about getting a day off. It was a sign of the covenant that God made with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, It is one of the markers of what it meant to be part of God's chosen people. Which is why if you were to profane the Sabbath, you would be cut off from God's people because you rejected the covenant sign. So this is a serious charge. But I don't think that we need to take the Pharisees' word for it here. I searched the entire Bible for a law that says that you're not allowed to pluck heads of grain, rub them in your hands, and eat them on the Sabbath. No such law exists. So the alleged violation here comes down to a matter of interpretation. Not a matter of the letter of the law. And this point becomes important when we look at Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Just like at Matthew's house, Jesus takes an accusation against his disciples as an accusation against himself. And he answers for his disciples in verse three. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave to those who are with him? Jesus here is referencing 1 Samuel 21. And if you read that passage, what you'll see is that David is on the run from Saul, and he and his men are really hungry. So they come to Ahimelech, the high priest, and they say, we need bread. And Ahimelech says, all I have is the bread of the presence, this holy bread that was in the tabernacle. Now, this bread was actually illegal. It was against the law for anyone to eat this bread except a clean priest, and it could only be eaten in the tabernacle. And so Ahimelech takes this bread, and he gives it to David and his men, even though he knew that it was against the law. Now, Ahimelech probably wasn't in much of a position to say no to David at this point. You can just imagine David and his crew of gladiators rolling up, ready to shake down this poor priest out of his bread. But he knew that it was against the law to give David this bread. So what is Jesus saying here? How is a story about David and bread supposed to defend him against the charge of Sabbath-breaking? Notice that Jesus doesn't admit the charge. He doesn't agree that his disciples are working on the Sabbath. Here's what Jesus is saying. You Pharisees are accusing my disciples of breaking the Sabbath based on your interpretation of work. Your interpretation would mean that you expect my disciples to go hungry. And yet generations before, your own high priest Broke an actual law to feed hungry people. And if Ahimelech the high priest understood it is better to feed hungry people than to keep the letter of the law, how much more should my disciples eat despite your faulty interpretation? Your own high priest recognized that God's laws were never intended to make people go hungry. If your interpretation of God's laws means that sometimes people must go hungry, Your interpretation is wrong. The 12 loaves of the bread of the presence were meant to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were meant to feed hungry priests. And you'll actually read about that in our reading plan this week in Leviticus 24. And if that's true, how much more should they be given to the anointed king of Israel and his men who are hungry? One commentator said, Jesus cites David's violation of Torah not as an excuse for his action, but as precedent for it. By claiming authority over the Sabbath and using the bread of the presence example, Jesus is claiming to be a new high priest, one who interprets the Sabbath law correctly. One of the things that Jesus doesn't say about this story is that Ahimelech, the high priest, would be killed by Saul along with 85 other priests for feeding David. Jesus, too, will lose his life because the authorities don't like the way he is rejecting their traditions. And if all that wasn't enough, Jesus throws down the gauntlet in verse 5. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is the second time that Jesus uses the title Son of Man for himself. The first time was last week when Jesus healed the paralytic and the Pharisees clearly saw that Jesus was talking about himself. Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man from Daniel chapter seven, who comes on the clouds of heaven and receives authority over the nations from God. Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man from Daniel seven, and I am Lord of the Sabbath. Now, we aren't told how the Pharisees responded to this claim, but you can just imagine them thinking, who does this guy think he is? Like seriously, he rejects our traditions, he claims to fulfill biblical prophecy, and he claims to be Lord of the Sabbath. Who do you think you are, Jesus? This sets up the second episode where Jesus again clashes with the Pharisees on the Sabbath. Look at verse six. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now, this, is, this little episode is absolutely hilarious. I've taught high school math for 16 years, and one of the things that I've found in that time is that there are no worse decisions made than in committee meetings. And you can just imagine this committee meeting right here. Like all the scribes and Pharisees get together and they say, hey, you know how that guy Jesus likes healing people? Let's see if he'll heal somebody on the Sabbath. And some guy in the back is like, yeah, that's a great idea, right? No miracles on the Sabbath. That's the rule, right? Now we got him. Like this is their plan they think this is a good plan like on one side you have miracle working guy and on the other side you have non-miracle working guy like who do you think is going to come out on top in this situation jesus can't resist a good miracle opportunity apparently we're told that the plotters are now scribes and pharisees the scribes were temple officials responsible for copying and teaching the bible the pharisees needed backup the level of authority that Jesus is coming into conflict with is being ratcheted up. So Jesus is here, teaching in the synagogue, as he usually is, and it says in verse 8, But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with a withered hand, Come, stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? So now Jesus puts the law question to the Pharisees. In the grain field, the Pharisees were questioning Jesus. Now the roles are reversed. Is there a law that says, thou shalt not miraculously heal on the Sabbath? Thou shalt not do good on the Sabbath? Thou shalt not save life on the Sabbath? Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you would have that this man not be healed today. You would rather harm and destruction come for the sake of upholding your tradition. For the sake of upholding your tradition that God never said. And so Jesus sets himself up here. He calls his own shot. Jesus understands the gracious principle behind the Sabbath. Compassion and love take precedence over the Sabbath command not to work. And notice the Pharisees don't answer him here. They don't know what to say. They are silent. And their silence is self-incriminating. Verse 10. And after looking around at all of them, he said, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. Again, notice Jesus isn't even doing any work here. Surely asking someone to stretch out their hand is no more work than standing up there teaching them the scriptures. You would think that this would be cause for celebration and rejoicing. This guy just got healed. But that's not what you get. The Pharisees' hearts are so hard, and they are so set in their ways and their traditions and their interpretations that they cannot rejoice in a miracle that they have just seen and they cannot hear the voice of God from the one who is standing literally right in front of them, who gave them the Sabbath law in the first place. Verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The Greek word here literally means they lost their minds or were filled with madness. These Pharisees are not acting rationally, They are out of their minds. And from this point forward, we see the beginnings of the plot that will eventually lead to Jesus' death. They're saying, we got to do something to this guy. Not do something about him. No, we need to do something to him. Apparently, a person can be miraculously healed in a church service, and not everyone is happy about it because it doesn't conform to their preconceived notions of how healing and worship should operate. Do you see how legalism blinds people? These scribes and Pharisees love their traditions and their law so much that the God of the universe is standing right in front of them performing a healing miracle and they hate him for it. Church, we need to be on guard that we don't fall in love with our traditions and our interpretations so much that we turn into Pharisees ourselves. Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees is not over. It's not even over because of the Sabbath. They're just biding their time. And we'll actually see conflict over the Sabbath come up again in Luke 13. So what can we take away from these two episodes where Jesus comes into conflict with the Pharisees on the Sabbath? The first thing I think that we need to understand is what the Sabbath means for Christians. Do Christians need to keep the Sabbath? And if so, what does that look like? It's important to realize that the Sabbath precedes the law that was given by Moses. The Sabbath is the only one of the 10 commandments that is rooted in creation. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Humans have never been without a Sabbath. Sabbath is a creational ordinance where we imitate God in his resting in creation. This is what Jews of Jesus' day and today tried to capture with all the rules and regulations that they built up around the Sabbath. They saw Sabbath as imitation. We are to imitate God in his resting. And that is certainly an important point. I think this is an important point for Christians today. Are you imitating God in your regular patterns of work and rest? Or are you so overprogrammed that you cannot imagine finding time to engage in regular rest and refreshment? Do you work so much? and are so burned out that you cannot imagine removing yourself for intentional times of rest in the Lord. Have you so overprogrammed your kids and their activities that they don't have regular times of rest? Or that your family is so overworked that they can't even make it to church on Sunday? Being overworked is not honoring to God. And being burned out is not honoring to God. In our apprentice academy, one of the exercises that Pastor Matt walks the class through is called the ideal week, where you get to write down what would an ideal week look for you. And you can actually schedule in regular times of work and rest and family time. Another activity that he takes the class through is actually the ideal year, which is the same thing on a bigger scale. Some parts of the year are busier than others. I know that. I coach high school football, and the fall is a really busy time for me and my family. And so the ideal year helps me realize that I need to schedule intentional long periods of rest before, during, and after the fall. These are some things that could help you if you're struggling with regular rhythms of rest. But don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that Christians are bound by all the 39 rules and regulations that Jews today say constitutes work on the Sabbath. I don't think we as Christians understand just how restrictive Jewish Sabbath-keeping actually is. On the Sabbath, Jews today are not allowed to drive a car, to cook food, to do laundry, to use a pencil, or to carry scissors. Because if you carry them, you might be tempted to use them. The last time we had a daylight savings switchover, I was pushing buttons on my mother-in-law's stove trying to change the clock. And somehow, I don't know how this happened, somehow I turned on Sabbath mode. And I freaked out for a second because I thought, does this mean that the stove won't work one day a week? Like, what in the world is Sabbath mode? So I absolutely had to look it up. Here's what Sabbath mode means. Sabbath mode is on some appliances that means that the internal light, when you open the door, will not turn on. Because turning on a light, even automatically, is profaning the Sabbath. Somehow, I don't think this is what God meant when he said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. On it you shall not do any work. I find it interesting that nowhere in the entire Bible does God define what work is restricted on the Sabbath. Gathering sticks is clearly out, as we saw from Numbers 15. But Jesus not only claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath, but in a parallel passage in Mark's Gospel, we read, The Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So Jesus is even the interpreter of the Sabbath command, and he is saying it is a gift, and that we have turned it into a burden. We restricted it even to the extent that men should go hungry and sick people should not be healed. Martin Luther said, if Sunday were anywhere made holy merely for the day's sake or its observance set on a Jewish foundation... Then I order you to walk on it, to ride on it, to dance on it, to feast on it, to do anything that shall remove this encroachment on Christian liberty. See, what Luther realized is that Sabbath is not just about imitation. We don't just imitate God in his resting. But Sabbath is also participation. Participation in God's sustaining, liberating, healing kingdom work. Resting from work on the Sabbath is good, but so is participating in God's kingdom work. Like feeding hungry people. Like healing sick people. The privilege that we have as Christians is that we know that the Lord of the Sabbath is, that it's Jesus. And that is how the Jewish Sabbath pointed to him all along. So you can participate with God in on the Sabbath, as well as imitate him by resting. This could look like celebrating a baptism like we did a few weeks ago, cooking and enjoying great food like we do on first Sundays, serving in the children's ministry by teaching our kids, meeting as a community group to encourage one another and pray for one another, having family, prayer, and devotion time, visiting someone who is sick. These things are not forbidden Work on the Sabbath. Jesus wants us to participate in blessing others in His name. So, for Christians, yes, Sabbaths should be special days of rest, but not just rest. They should be special days of dispensing God's kingdom blessings to others because He has freely given us so much to celebrate and enjoy. So, our work on the Sabbath. Should look different. Some of us don't have an option. We have to work on Sundays. Just ask a village kids volunteer if Sunday is a work day. Ask a preacher or a preacher's wife if Sunday is a work day. Kimberly will definitely tell you that when I'm preaching, Sunday is a work day for the whole family. For some of you, your job schedules schedules you to work on Sundays. You don't have a choice. Unless you work at Chick-fil-A, I guess. It's easy to Sabbath well when you work at Chick-fil-A. Let me give you three helpful insights for the kind of work that we should do on the Sabbath. I got these ideas from one of the books that I read in preparation for this sermon. This is The Sabbath Rest by Guy Waters. It is excellent. And so if you want to read more about these three ways for work on the Sabbath, we actually have a few copies in the back that you can pick up. But Waters has three kinds of work that are pleasing to the Lord on the Sabbath. Number one, do the work of worship. Whatever we need to do the other six days of the week, we need to make sure that we are rested and our schedules are free enough that we can make it to worship on the Sabbath, together with our church family. This might mean saying no to certain activities or sports leagues, or saying goodbye to sleeping in on Sundays. If you're traveling, use it as an opportunity to check out a good gospel, Bible-preaching church in the area. Hebrews 10, 24 says, "'And let us consider how to stir one another up "'to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Number two, do the work of necessity. As I said, some of you are nurses and doctors and firefighters and soldiers. Work on Sunday is a very real reality for these professions and more, and that is a good thing. I'm glad that all our police officers don't take Sunday off. But for the rest of us, there are still works of necessity, like cooking, helping the kids with homework, or even helping your neighbor as the opportunity arises. Jesus didn't think that the Sabbath was so restrictive that hungry men shouldn't eat. The Sabbath is not a reason for us to stop working on necessary things. And number three, do the work of mercy. Sunday is a great day to visit a sick person or volunteer your time or deliver a meal or serve in village kids. These are all great works of mercy that bless God's people and an opportunity to bring the light of Christ to others. Jesus himself healed on the Sabbath. And this day, above all days, is a great day to show acts of kindness and mercy to others. But if your Sabbath looks different from somebody else, Christians shouldn't use it as a point of contention. If you decide that Sunday is a day for rest and family, don't look down on your brother who celebrates differently. Colossians 2:16 through 17 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath looks back to a creational pattern, but it also looks forward. It's a shadow of the things to come, the things that belong to Christ. We get to Sabbath now because one day, we will experience everlasting, unending Sabbath rest with Jesus in his Father's kingdom. And there will be rest, and there will also be sanctified work where we participate with God in his kingdom work. But it will be holy work, not burdensome work. So don't pass judgment on each other in regards to these things. Paul also says in Romans 14:5, one person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So however you choose to Sabbath with your family, let each one be convinced in his own mind. For Christians, obviously you're all here, we now Sabbath on Sundays, the first day of the week. This is a tradition that goes back to the earliest Christians because we celebrate on the day of the week that the Lord rose from the dead. And so it is right that we gather to worship to celebrate Jesus' resurrection on the day when he rose. In the Old Testament, the Jews rested because they rested to enjoy God's creation. As Christians, we now rest to enjoy what God has done in new creation. How many of us consider Monday to be the first day of the week? You ever think about that? We even call Saturday and Sunday the weekend. That is how much work has intruded into our lives, that we even use work now to structure our understanding of time, rather than Sunday, Sabbath being the first day of the week. Maybe some of you need to develop a Sabbath plan with your family so that you can be sure to build in regular, refreshing periods of rest. Some of you could take Sabbath time to spend more time, more needed time with family, but sloth is not Sabbath. So some of you may need to go and do works of mercy on Sundays. But Sabbath should not be a burden for Christians, it should be a delight. Because there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We should still Sabbath. But Sabbath should not look like it once did. Because the way we Sabbath can be a testimony to the gospel to the world. Look at Hebrews 4, 9 through 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his works. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Sabbath rest is a real thing. It is something that we should all observe. But why is that? It's because when you have entered God's rest, you rest from your works as God did from his. And these works could be physical work, don't get me wrong, but I think it's deeper than that. I know non-Christians who think that God will accept them because they do good things. So they work, and they strive, and they hope that they're good enough. But the gospel says, you can't be good enough. You can't achieve enough for God to accept you. Because we are fallen, sinful people. So it took Jesus Christ doing the work for us that we could not do ourselves. The work for our salvation. So we don't have to work, but we just have to trust in him alone. Hardest Voss said, the work which issues into the rest can no longer be man's own work. It becomes the work of Christ. We rest from our own efforts to order our lives according to God's purposes rather than our own. So what Sabbath rest tells the world is that we don't have to work for our salvation. Our God is not looking for performance. He is looking for us to rest in his finished work. And when you Sabbath well, you are telling the world that you have rested from trying to work for your salvation. Because Jesus did the work for you on the cross. Heaven will be a place of eternal rest. Hell will be a place where there is no rest. Those who die without believing in Jesus will never experience rest. Revelation 14.11 says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So if you want to experience eternal rest, put your faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So stop trying to earn your salvation. Stop working for it, stop striving. Come to Jesus and you will find rest for your soul. So I would encourage you to consider how you can Sabbath in such a way to communicate these wonderful truths to others. Another thing that stood out to me about this passage was that there were still farmers in Israel at this time who left the edges of their field to feed hungry people. When you don't harvest the margins of your field, what you are saying is that all you have is not yours. What you have is not your own, but it can be put to the common use and for God to use the margins to feed hungry and needy people. Following the law in this way was actually the mark of a righteous person. Think about how the positive way that Boaz was portrayed in the book of Ruth for allowing gleaners in his field. Now as far as I know, no one in this room owns a grain farm. But you know what I think we all do? I think we harvest the margins of our lives so that there's nothing left for others. Because when you harvest all of your time and all of your energy and all of your money, when you harvest all the margins of your life, no one is going to glean anything from you. What Sabbath does is it gives us margin. And from that margin, we can meet the needs of others. Sabbath is a check against idolatry and gives us the opportunity to consider the needs of others. I don't know, maybe you're like me. I have a problem saying no to things. And I coach high school football, so the fall is a really busy time for my family. And one particular season, I was really overworked, and they asked me to take on more responsibility, and I said yes. And the way I explained it to Kimberly was, Honey, don't worry. I have the capacity. And my very wise wife said, Yeah, but we I didn't realize that I had gotten to the point that I wasn't just harvesting the margins on my life, I was harvesting the margins of the lives of my family. And can I just say to like the men in the room, chances are that if there's someone in your family who is harvesting the margins of the family, chances are it's the man. It's the husband. And so we of all people, men, need to be careful that we are protecting the margins of our family and then we're not using their margin to support us and what we want to do. Needless to say, I had to make some much needed adjustments that year to increase not only my own margins, but the margins of my family. And that brings us to our good news this morning. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and through faith in him, we will one day enter into his everlasting. One last point that I wanted to mention. Last week, Pastor David preached on Jesus healing two men. Our men's Bible study has been going through Matthew 8, where Jesus healed many people. And this week, we saw Jesus heal a man on the Sabbath. As I was preparing for this sermon, I just couldn't shake this feeling that I felt like the Lord was telling me that I needed to focus on healing. Now, many of you know me. And you know that this is not my proclivity. This is not something that I'm necessarily bent towards talking about. I would much rather talk about exegesis and interpretation and theology and do all those kinds of things. And I think I certainly did that. But I couldn't shake this sense that God wanted me to talk about healing. That actually makes me really uncomfortable. But I sense that that's what God was saying, so we need to talk about it. We don't seem to look for God to heal people today. I mean, sure, we'll pray for it, but do we really expect it? I don't think God has gotten out of the healing business. And I have news for you. Jesus, one day, will heal all Christians of all ailments. All Christians of all ailments. I was talking with a partner in this church recently who had been experiencing a debilitating health issue for years. And a few weeks ago, someone prayed for him and the ailment was gone. And he hasn't experienced it since. God still does works of healing and he still does them in this church. God still heals by miracles. But God also heals by means. Many of you know my wife Kimberly had lung surgery in December. And I believe that God healed her through means. The means of an excellent surgeon and excellent medical care. But it was no less a blessing when God healed her through means. And you know what? Some of you, God is gonna heal through death. Lauren Graves was one of my partners. Many of you knew Lauren and her family. And we prayed for four years that God would heal her from cancer. And you know what, she doesn't have cancer anymore. Pastor Matt and I were there with her family when she finally went home to be with the Lord. And she's healed now. Of course we would love, we would rather that she would be here with us and be healed but she's no longer suffering. And whether it's in this life or in the life to come, God will heal all Christians who put their faith in him. And I think that the Bible is clear that we should pray for healing. Now, we've all seen the charlatans on TV, right? Where they wheel granny up on stage and the guy in the white suit puts his hand on her face and granny jumps up and starts doing backflips, right? Like we've all seen This kind of stuff. I think some of us are scared because we don't want to look like that. But I also think that some of us don't ask for healing because we don't want to be disappointed. We're afraid that God's going to say no, and that's certainly possible. God said no to Paul. Paul had what he called a thorn in the flesh, and God told him, "And you," or Paul said. Uh, He pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away. And the Lord didn't, but said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Some of you might ask for physical healing today. Maybe your hand isn't withered, but maybe you're experiencing health issues in other ways. But God doesn't just heal people physically. Maybe you need relational healing today. Maybe you're in a marriage that needs healing. Maybe a relationship with a family member needs healing. God can heal your relationships too. And some of you need to come up here for healing because your soul is withered. You need to come to Jesus and ask him to heal your soul because you've never asked Jesus for forgiveness and you've never placed your faith in him. Today would be a great day to do that. Because that prayer for Jesus to heal your soul, that prayer is always answered. And so if you come to Jesus this morning, he will heal your soul if you confess, believe, and trust in him. Now, I can't promise that Jesus is gonna heal your body today. I'm just a man, I can't do that. But I think this passage gives us a wonderful picture of what it looks like for Jesus to heal someone And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Stand here. Jesus called him to stand in front of the whole synagogue. Jesus could have easily brought this guy aside privately and healed him. But he didn't do that. He asked the man to stand in front of the congregation so that everyone could give glory to God when they saw it. The next thing that Jesus said was, Stretch out your hand. I don't know about you, but if I had a prolonged malady or injury, the last thing that I would want is for attention to be drawn to it in front of other people. Jesus asked this man to show his malady so all could see, so that all could see that Jesus healed him with just his words. I think these are two great steps for us this morning. Now, I'm not going to ask you to stand up in front of the whole congregation and show your malady to everybody but we're gonna have our prayer team up here and our pastors up here, and you can stretch out your hand to them. You can tell them how you're asking God to heal you. Usually we wait until the end of the service for our prayer team to come up here and pray for people, but not today. Not today. We're gonna do it right now. Like right now. So if you would like to be prayed for, for healing, our pastors and our prayer team are going to come forward, and you need to stand up, and you need to come forward to get prayed for right now. Talk to one of the pastors and one of the prayer teams as the band plays, and we would love to pray for you. Some of you came up here last week when Pastor David asked you to, to get prayed for, for healing. You should come up here again. I talked to a few of you last week who didn't come forward you should come forward this morning because I know who you are. And if you don't come forward, I'm going to go out into the crowd and I will find you. And I will pray for you. So we would ask, if you're looking for physical healing, relational healing, healing for your soul, we would ask you to come forward this morning. Jesus died so that we could have eternal life. And by his wounds you have been healed. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the rest that we have in you. Lord, I pray that we would be able to rest well, that it would be a testament to the gospel that we don't have to work for our salvation. And Lord, we thank you for your healing power. We thank you for what you have done so that we could ultimately always be healed of all of our maladies one day. And so whether it's today, later, or in the life to come, Lord, I pray that you would hear our prayers, healing for our people, and it would be all glory to your name. Amen.